Hello and welcome to the Children's Learning Disability Therapeutic Service series of podcasts, providing advice and guidance to families who care for a child with a learning disability. I'm Louise McConnell, the clinical lead for the service, and today I'm with Sharon to discuss the interesting topic of what is a learning disability. Sharon, you're very welcome today. Thank you. We are going to talk about a topic that you and I have talked about off and on for quite some time Mm -hmm. and the importance of giving information to families that maybe struggle with the terminology that is being used. Yeah, very much so. I think it's one of those things that it seems very easy and straightforward, but as you'll see once we get into it, it can be a bit more complex. So to begin... Introduce yourself and explain who you are. Okay, Uh, my name is Sharon Fraser and I work as a specialist clinical psychologist within the Children's Learned Disability Therapeutic Service. So my main role in the service is working with children and young people who are experiencing difficulties with their emotional well-being. Um, The most common areas of need I see are anxiety, low mood, anger and trauma presentations. And the aim of my work is to increase a family's or a person's ability to cope with difficult emotions to help them understand their experiences a bit more and improve their quality of life. No mean feat. No. (laughs) So let's just jump straight in because listeners are probably wondering what we mean when we say learning disability. What actually is a learning disability? Okay, so... What I'll start off with is that a learning disability is lifelong. It is a permanent condition and it affects learning and intelligence across all areas of life. So in psychology, when we're thinking about a learning disability, there's three parts to that diagnosis. The first is a significant impairment in intellectual functioning, which basically means your IQ or your intelligence, for example, your ability to reason, plan, problem solve, think abstractly and learn from experience. The second is a significant impairment of adaptive behaviour. So what we mean by that is the social and practical skills of everyday life, for example, getting dressed, working a microwave, road safety, forming and maintaining friendships. And the third part is that these two main impairments would happen before the age of 18, so whilst the person is still a child. And what we know is that a person with a learning disability can still develop and gain skills, but they won't catch up to the ability level of children their age who do not have a learning disability. Okay. And what you've just said there, there's a a lot even in those brief few sentences. And I think one of the things that's very clear is there there are different parts to intelligence. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the problem solving, there's the practical uh, everyday life things, and there's also the maybe learning new skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is all of those come together to give this overall idea of whether a person has a learning disability or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Given what you've just said there, Sharon, about the idea of a person with a learning disability won't catch up, mm-hmm. as you put it, to the ability level of a child of their own age, is that, that, that sounds maybe a wee bit 
hopeless or a wee bit maybe a wee bit worrying for families? It can do and I think that's one of the the difficulties in the assessment process and the diagnostic process is it can often focus on deficits and things that the child can't do rather than what they can but I suppose one of the really lovely things about our job is that we see, we see so many examples of children who are supported well and who are understood they can achieve a really really good quality of life if they have the right supports around them so it's not all doom and gloom and it might take a wee while for those sort of more positive parts to come through and even within that sort of overall idea that a child or a young person will have impairments as it were there still will be lovely strengths in there as well and many lovely qualities that parents will start to see emerging mm-hmm. yeah and one of the issues that parents will mention because you've you've mentioned one issue that it, it about the idea of impairment but one another issue that parents mention is different terminology yeah <laughs> I think that's a bit of our life sometimes I learned this really Louise is that there's just so many different terms some of them mean the same things some of them mean entirely different things or slightly different things um for example a learning disability can also be known as an intellectual disability those two terms mean the same thing Mm -hmm. um intellectual disability is the more updated term the more scientific type term but I think we found that service users kind of prefer learning disability but they're We'll talk about it probably later on in the podcast, but there's a number of terms which people can see in reports and letters about their children. And often it's not entirely clear what each of those terms mean. And that's that's not just for parents, that's for professionals oh, as well. completely, yes. I mean, today, for example, um, myself and an, another team member spent quite a bit of time trying to understand there's two different terms being used which could have meant two different things. It just meant we had to dig a bit deeper and look at things a bit more closely before we recognised what what two different professionals were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit about the terminology. How does a child get a learning disability? So there's many causes to a learning disability it can be an inherited condition so that's whenever genes are passed down from parents which affect the brain development there can be chromosomal differences for example down syndrome or other syndromes there can be complications during the actual birth which result in a lack of oxygen to the brain and premature birth can sometimes be a cause or maternal illness during pregnancy but Sometimes there's no cause at all that can be found. And even for the likes of genetics, Mm -hmm. I think parents can sometimes feel that if genes have been found to come from them, there can be that sense of sort of blame and shame. And that's not the case. You, You don't know what your genetic makeup is. And it's random chance sometimes that these things get passed down. And I think a lot of parents sort of blame themselves sometimes. You'd said at the very beginning that it should be present before a young person is 18. Mm -hmm. That sounds to me like sometimes family may not be aware that they have a learning disability straight from birth. That's right. I think even though a lot of cases are present from birth, sometimes it takes a long time to sort of see those difficulties emerging. Mm -hmm. For a family, it might not be apparent until a bit later on that something's amiss or something slightly different. 
And then there's those other group of children who sometimes have an accident or illness during their childhood, which causes a learning disability to occur. So they might be developing, I guess, on a typical path up to a certain age and then they're hit with illness or a sort of accident. And then they would sort of find that they're fallen now into this category of learning disability when they didn't beforehand. And we work in the world of learning disability. So we tend to be steeped, for want of a better word, um, in learning disability. And if your child goes to a school um, for children with a severe learning disability or special education needs, you might see a lot of disability. But just how common is a learning disability? It's thought that about 2% of the population would have a learning disability. So that would amount to about 1.5 million people in the UK. And it would represent maybe about 300,000 young people. So even though it might seem like not very much, whenever you're a family, you may be feeling you're navigating this alone. But there's a lot of parents out there who are going through similar experiences and navigating this new unfamiliar path of parenthood. But it might not be until your child starts to go to school when you connect with other families who are going through a similar journey to yourself. And you've just mentioned typical path and journey there. Let's take that road trip. Um, some parents, some families listening to this, they will have had, their child will have already had a diagnosis of a learning disability. But what might a typical journey um, for a family be? Okay, so right at the start of most parents' journey, they will find somebody in their lives that might be themselves, it might be a health professional, like a health visitor, it could be nursery staff or family, friends or relatives. Someone might have a concern about their child, that the child maybe isn't following a typical or expected path of development by a certain age. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that I think is maybe easiest for for a lot of parents to identify with is that little red book that everyone gets whenever their child is born and some religiously fill it out some like (laughs) me forget about it after a few months but in that little book in the first couple of pages there's usually a little section which shows what is expected at different ages it covers things like smiling at about two months and being able to hold up your head unsupported by about four months and making babbling sounds by nine months walking by 18 months for example. And we should say that they are, as you said, expected, they're typical, Mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily what happens to everybody. No, I think it's trying to get the majority, trying to capture what majority of children will go through. And it's sort of like a, we call them milestones, but children will reach them maybe at slightly different ages. So even if people have more than one child, they might find maybe one child walks at 11 months and the next child walks at 15 months. But for us looking at that, that would broadly fit into that milestone and both both those children would sort of be deemed typical development, even though there's a number of months between it. Yeah. So what happens then if the child is not following that typical path of development? When children aren't following a typical path of development and those concerns have been raised, the next stage is usually that the child is referred to the Child Development Clinic, which is also known as the CDC. And what happens there? So at the CDC, there's a number of different health professionals and they will meet with parents or the carers and their child. And during that time, there'll be a detailed history taken from parents just to hear about the development of the child up to that point. They might ask about 
pregnancy and birth and labour and all those sorts of things. And they'll also be trying to rule out medical causes for the the sort of delay in development, as it were. At that stage, there's also usually a one-to-one assessment with the child just to see directly what those Mm -hmm. differences might be at that stage. And often at this stage, a child may be diagnosed with global developmental delay. And I suppose I'm thinking about how you just mentioned about medical causes that we have found in the past. If a child has a physical disability, Mm -hmm. that that can impair or affect maybe, say, their motor development. Mm -hmm. Um, But then other parts of their development are carrying along, going along perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. So a child who maybe needs assistance with walking or their um, movement will you'll find that their their cognitive development is still going along fine mm-hmm. so they wouldn't necessarily meet that criteria of global developmental delay no no and that would be similar for a child that might have some speech difficulties or a hearing impairment or something like that whereas you say there's one area mm-hmm. which might be sort of impacting the rest but actually their sort of overall ability level yeah is doing okay so they might actually receive some specific support around that one area mm-hmm. but then what we'll find is that children who get that diagnosis of global developmental delay that's when there is a delay compared to children of the same age in several developmental areas so that can be the language element so talking taking turns in conversation that type of thing it can be the social or emotional part which is playing with other children understanding social rules that kind of a thing the physical like you were mentioning there walking kicking a ball eating with a spoon all those skills And then the cognitive, so following commands, copying gestures, knowing what objects are used for, those types of things. So all those areas are usually involved, or at least two of them, actually, Mm -hmm. um, is what the diagnosis of global developmental delay is. And at that point, we're looking at children are being assessed, but then we're looking at what interventions can be put in place to try and maybe strengthen particular skills or to see if that skills in a particular area can be developed further but what if a child I think usually as you say there's there's children and they might get a course of speech therapy or or other things which may help them catch up to where their same aged peers are but if a child doesn't catch up and it's usually usually this is sort of found in and around nursery or sort Mm -hmm. of very early primary school stage that's when educational psychologists will come on board Mm -hmm. and their job is to complete further assessment to help inform statements of special educational need. Right now you've said a very important (laughs) word there. Just about said it. (laughs) (laughs) You've said something that a lot of families struggle with and um, are unclear about so what is a statement of special education need? I'm just going to shorten that to statement because it's a bit of a (laughs) tongue twister for me. So a statement is a legal document that states the type of special help and support a child will need in an educational setting. Um, It's written using the advice gathered during that statutory assessment of the child. Um, Again, that advice, that sort of information is gathered from the child, from the parents, from the staff 
either nursery staff or school staff. And this is often where a child is diagnosed with a learning disability. The statement, it does involve that direct assessment of the child. And again, there's a bit of a theme here, but it's always compared against what is expected of other children the same age. So it's always measured against what a typically developing child might be expecting mm-hmm. to achieve to sort of show whether there's that impairment or not. Yeah. And that impairment, I suppose we should also tell or say to our listeners, is a statistical thing mm-hmm. that it has to be shown to be significantly different than, than peers. Yeah, and if we were kind of delivering this podcast face-to-face, we might have a bit of a graph to kind of explain it. Although I think sometimes it can be hard to wrap your head around it and visually it can be quite difficult just to see how far down the graph we're yeah. talking when we think about learning disability. Yeah. You know, it really would be something that you'd be like, hang on here, this child really has, you know, they're struggling, they're, they're sort of struggling to keep up or life's, you know, without support, life's getting quite difficult for them. Yeah, and life can be difficult for um, some of these young people mm-hmm. and they they do require um, assistance. Absolutely, and I think... I just want to make a note here about the word impairment because it it doesn't necessarily fit well with me either. I don't like using that word, but as psychologists, we're guided by the British Psychological Society when it comes to diagnosis. And that is the sort of scientific terminology that they use. And as Louise said, it's it's very much um, based on sort of statistical side of things. So I know that can be maybe quite jarring for parents to hear as well. And it's not something that we actually would use face-to-face or very much in our day-to-day practice. It's just something that for the purposes of this podcast will hopefully make it a bit more clear what we're talking about. It does sound very clinical, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And we're not, you know, these are little young people. They're little parts of people's families Mm -hmm. and they're very special, important parts. Yeah. So we've talked, I briefly mentioned um, sort of motor difficulties or physical disability and you you mentioned hearing but what about other conditions such as autism or down syndrome or other chromosomal disorders that maybe come along? Mm-hmm. ASD autism is a good one to start with actually because it in itself is not a learning disability but very often there's a very high prevalence of ASD within the learning disability population. So not everybody with a learning disability will have ASD and certainly not everybody with ASD will have a learning disability but there's a good bit of overlap and I guess ASD is a neurodevelopmental condition Mm -hmm. so that basically means your brain development and it's very specific. There's specific areas that, that again a child will have issues in but Alongside that, their general intellect, their IQ that we talked about before, their sort of intelligence levels, that's not necessarily affected by ASD uh, or in ASD. So I guess it's it's important to think about because there's a lot of our young people we support who will have ASD and a learning disability. There'll be other ones who have the ASD without and there'll be the ones who have a learning disability and don't have the ASD. Although there's some features that would overlap in the two conditions in terms of communication, social skills, you know, sort of um, less flexible thought patterns, wanting routine, 
things like that. And it might be useful for some of our listeners out there to tap into the ASD podcasts. Yes, that's right. I forgot <laughs> about them. Now, um, our trust as well have created a lovely little series of ASD podcasts and what you might find if you listen to them, of course, it's more focused on ASD and ASD specific, but a lot of that information will map onto our population of learned disability as well. So then let me throw in another term. What about learning difficulty? <laughs> I get tied up a bit with this as well. But a learning difficulty is not the same as a learning disability, although time again, professionals and parents and school staff will use the two terms interchangeably. But mm-hmm. that's that's incorrect. A learning difficulty does not affect general intellect or your IQ. So a learning difficulty means that a person will experience problems in a school setting. So examples include ADHD, dyslexia and dyspraxia. And what that means is that there are kind of conditions that young people can have that act as a barrier to them accessing education. Mm -hmm. But when you go and actually assess their intelligence levels, that's not impacted by it. Mm -hmm. It just means that sort of trying to learn the information in that environment mm-hmm. is difficult through other for other reasons. It is very confusing. Yes, it really is. The, what makes it more confusing as well is you can have a learning difficulty and a learning disability at the same time. Okay. And they can overlap as well. What people might recognise is that learning disability is more commonly referred to in healthcare services whereas learning difficulty is used in schools and for statementing procedures. So you might get a young person who has a moderate learning difficulty, mm-hmm. but that is different from a moderate learning disability. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. Absolutely. Especially if it's abbreviated to MLD. Yeah. You know ourselves, when we get referrals into our services, we have to do a lot of digging to try and work out, is this for our service or is it not, based on... Yeah. yeah, it is really confusing. Um, and as you say, we do have to dig at times to try and sort that out. And there's times whenever a young person will have a learning difficulty, such as ADHD, but they will also have a learning disability. And it's really important that we understand the child's whole needs when we don't just lump it together as a learning disability and or a learning difficulty, because how a child is, is important rather than just those two labels that uh, the child's being given. Well, that's it. And I think some of our families, you know, even by the time their child is, is quite young, has maybe attracted a lot of different labels. And whilst that has its role in terms of accessing the right kind of support and acting as a bit of a marker for other people to recognise what a child might need, it is really important not to lose the child underneath that and to remember that this is a young person with loads of skills, loads of lovely attributes, personality parts and to really, as you say, look holistically at what they need mm-hmm. to try and support them and just not to have it as that clinical sort of yeah. separate labels on separate pieces of paper. And the separate pieces of paper can fly in thick and fast at times. So if parents are confused about diagnosis or reports what could they do? I think it's really really important to 
speak to the educational psychologist or the health professional who has written the report. Um, very often parents receive them all and it's probably really overwhelming and it's really hard to sort of track which report comes from where, what needs reviewed, at what time, who does the review. But this is really important for your child. It's really important information. It is really confusing. At times, as you say, we're digging through reports, trying to figure out what different parts mean or what parts being reassessed. What does reassessment mean? Does that mean a whole redoing of the one-to-one assessment or is it just a review? And I think it's really important just to go whoever's written at the bottom, you know, the signature on the mm-hmm. report, please ask to speak to them. Please get clarity on anything that you're unclear about because it's really important that parents know what these reports are about and what information about their child actually means in a day-to-day setting. Yeah. What, I mean, Sharon, you and I both have children um, and our children have had their own health needs, but they have not went through the a process of learning disability assessment. What is your sense of what it's like for parents, given the conversations that we've had over the years? For a lot of parents, I think overwhelmed is maybe what it feels like. It just feels like this sort of influx of services that you didn't think you'd ever need. You know, every parent and every family is different, but for all of these families, what we know is that a learning disability is lifelong and it impacts independence, it impacts a person's social world, their emotions, their language, everything like that. And a person with a learning disability is likely to need some form of support throughout their lives. So their lives can be quite different from what others might have expected when they were born. So, you know, it can be overwhelmed to try and take that all in. Some mm-hmm. parents sort of focus more on the future and what will happen if, you know, once a child gets to a certain age or once they themselves get a bit older. Some families feel a bit of relief whenever, you know, they might have sort of been a bit more aware of differences early on yeah. and thinking, oh, hang on, something's not right here. And actually, whenever a diagnosis comes, it's like, phew, you know, at least we know now there's yeah. a bit of relief in that. But there's a whole range of emotions that parents feel. You know, we've been working in this field for a long time and no two families are the same, but shock can be a real big one, especially for families who just really didn't notice any differences or sort of thought their child was getting on quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of fear around what will happen. I think families can feel quite vulnerable. Who's going to support them? How do they get the support they need? You know, the news is full of stories of you know lacks lack of resources everywhere in the Mm -hmm. system and I think people worry a little bit about the future there can be anger there can be disbelief there can be resentment shame denial self-blame sadness or guilt and sometimes all of these at once yeah and sometimes one parent will feel some of those and another parent will feel something else so um we we often have families that maybe parents are feeling different have different emotional experiences about it yeah which can be hard and then there's also the wider families Mm -hmm. absolutely I think if a family has other children or has grandparents or, or sort of aunties and uncles maybe of a different generation sometimes that can be a bit of a barrier in itself or a bit of a hurdle to navigate because there can be very set ideas of what it means. Some families might say, oh, sure, there's nothing wrong with them. They're fine. 
Um, other ones can think, oh my goodness, these are these children okay to live at home? And sort of almost have their expectations placed very, very low for the child when the child actually can achieve so much more. But I think one of the things that's really common is it can take families a really long time to adjust to their child's diagnosis. It can be an ongoing process as well. They might revisit a lot of those emotions as they as the child gets older. And we sometimes refer to it as a bit of a continual adjustment. Um, or life stage yeah I think that's we would find a lot actually that there's certain sort of family milestones whether it's moving from primary school to secondary school age or it's at an age where you might expect a child to start to become a bit more independent sort of 15 16 17 um, finishing school whenever typically developing young people are learning to drive or their siblings are becoming married all those yeah. types of things can often throw up all these emotions again yeah. for families because there maybe is that recognition that their young person might not navigate these in the same way and also I'm thinking about one of the very first many many moons ago I don't like to think about it actually and um, Many years ago, I worked with a family and we were talking about parents and the parents were adjusting to the fact that two of the older siblings were moving on. So one was moving into a different, had graduated university mm-hmm. and different role and middle sibling was moving to university. But actually the child with a learning disability also was adjusting mm-hmm. to a different type of family life as well. And mm-hmm. um, so... It can be very different for families and there can be a lot of adjusting for families, but also there can be a lot of adjusting for the person with the learning disability as well. Yeah, and it's so important that we don't miss that piece out. And, you know, whilst, of course, we've been talking about that some of our young people maybe find it more difficult to to sort of fully recognise all those sort of life transitions a lot, do a lot see their younger siblings almost passing over their sort of milestones and you know that can be really difficult it can be such a massive loss to realize that your younger sibling is doing something before you're doing it or something that you might not ever get a chance to do Mm -hmm. and I think it's really important to acknowledge that as a loss yes so would there be any tips for adjustment the first thing I would say is that there's no set time frame and there's no set way to adjust and that it's different for every family. But no matter what way it feels for you, just please try and name and acknowledge whatever feelings you have. Please don't be ashamed of how you're feeling, especially if it's talking to one of us because we've heard it all before. Yeah, It's all normal and it's easier, I think, to sort of name and acknowledge what you're feeling rather than try and push those feelings away because they'll come back somewhere else. Yeah. And sometimes naming the f- naming your fears, especially about the future, that can take a bit of the power out of them. You know, even just saying them out loud or saying them to another person, even if there's not a solution to the fears, just getting it out of your head can be yeah. really helpful. And I suppose that's one of the things that we notice a lot and we would get a lot of questions, wouldn't we, Louise, from families about... What's going to happen when my child's such and such an age? Yeah. Or what if they get bigger and stronger and I can't manage them? Or yeah. what if I get sick? Or what if I get older? The what ifs. Yeah. And your mind just really races off into the future and predicts. It's actually usually the worst case scenario <laughs> that your mind predicts. You know yourself. It's always usually the negative futures for our children with learning disabilities. And I guess it's normal in some respects that our minds do that because you're trying to 
control a situation or make a situation predictable. It's just not predictable. But it can be really unhelpful, you know, because I think it can stop you living in the here and now and it can stop you noticing the positives and the benefits and the strengths of a young person in the here and now. Yeah. So as much as possible, just be gentle with yourself if you find your mind racing off, but try as much as you can to bring it back to the here and now. And other families can be a huge support. Certainly, you know, again, we would find that once children start school, families can feel more connected. It's really difficult in the current times with the pandemic and things to kind of get linked in with other families. But whenever we run our groups, I think parents really, really benefit from getting a chat to other parents who are going through similar or who might be at a slightly earlier stage or different stage and can provide a bit of support to others who are going through something similar. But definitely trying to speak to people who understand whether that is through a parent group or your child's school. It could be trusted friends and family or other health professionals. And if you feel like your emotional reaction is just causing you a bit more difficulty or you're just finding that you feel really stuck with your feelings, just try and seek further help if you need that, whether it's counselling services or, you know, just try and make sure that you look after your own well-being because it can be hard enough at times for anyone so absolutely mm-hmm. any resources that you you could earmark for families yeah i don't want to overload people with resources um i'll name a few here and we'll we'll put the link up to this on the podcast information but mencap the mencap website's a good place to start and learningdisabilities.co.uk the nhs.co.uk can give quite a sort of um, stripped down version of what a learning disability is and sometimes that's a nice way in, especially for family members who you've mm-hmm. never really come across it before. Downsyndrome.org.uk and there's other groups as well for other specific syndromes and BUILD, which is the British Institution for Learning Disability, so that's bild.org.uk. And of course, not to forget our other podcasts in this series, which go into a bit more depth of of various sort of presentations that would come up in our work. Yeah. Yeah, well, we should should definitely plug them a little bit. Shamelessly plug it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sharon, thank you so much for your time. I hope that that has been useful for our listeners. Thank you for explaining it so well. And to our listeners... Please check out the rest of our podcasts, as Sharon has said. Uh, And for now, that's it. So thanks for listening. Thank you.